Hello again and welcome to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We are also available streaming live online at RadioNorthland.org and we're part of the TuneIn family. Yes, TuneIn. You can check out all of our stations there too. Glenn Brockett with you once again with Rasslin Memories, and I am welcoming back for the third time, and it's a pleasure to have him back. And this week, uh, we're bringing him back to t- discuss the life of uh, one of his uh, tag team partners. Uh, we're going to be talking about the life of Brian Pillman, but we're also going to be talking about Stampede Wrestling around 1985 and into 1986 and so on and so forth as we follow Brian Pillman's career. And who better to uh, talk about the life of Brian Pillman than uh, the man himself, former professional wrestler. He's a trainer. He's a member of the uh, world-famous Hart family, and he's also the host of one fine little radio podcast doc program heartbeat radio i want to welcome the one and only bruce hart back to the territory of wrestling memories bruce it's a pleasure to hear from you again my friend oh my pleasure glenn uh, uh you do an awesome job there and uh and i've said it a long time i wish there was a lot more guys like yourself and uh and some of the other passionate journalists you know there's, there used to be some really great ones in minnesota there the Norm Keitzers and uh, some of those guys. So, yeah, anybody that, uh, you know, can kind of rekindle the old memories and all that type of thing is uh, a bonus these days, you know. So oh, absolutely. I wish there was more of you guys and uh, business would be a lot better uh, if, if that was the case. And it's absolutely so wonderful, and, and thank you for the kind words to, to have you on the program, to to be able to to have you come on and share some knowledge uh, of, the, of, of not only your life in pro wrestling, but some of the people that uh, kind of cross paths through the Stampede territory, of people of which you had great involvement with. And I, I want to kind of connect the story of Brian Pillman, who we'll get into detail with uh, later, uh, not too long, but uh, I want to talk about connecting Brian Pillman to previously the re- opening of the Stampede Wrestling Territory in 1985 because it wasn't that long after that Brian Pillman uh, trained for professional wrestling and ended up with the Stampede Territory and boy he really tore the roof off once he got training he was charisma through and through but Bruce I want to go back to around the late 1985 for the reopening of Stampede Wrestling now this was quite the ordeal considering it wasn't that long ago at the time that Vince McMahon had begun his great expansion of taking the ter- great hot territories and, and putting them under the auspices of the World Wrestling Federation. So you guys briefly were a part of the, the Vince McMahon uh, tree there, but broke away and were able to reopen in 1985. So take us back to uh, what made uh, you guys get back into the hunt here and, and reclaim your territory, basically, here with Stampede, with, with you and your dad and, and the rest of the family. What essentially happened there, Glenn? Uh, summer of '84, we were on uh, on we were on a hell of a roll. We had a great crew, you know. I had got guys like Dynamite Kid and uh, Davy Boy Brett, a whole bunch of others. Bad News Allen and uh, a lot of the top Japanese stars, you know. And then, uh, unbeknownst to me, Vince he had one of his old uh, cronies, a guy that used to be a booker for my dad, a guy named George Scott. He approached my dad and. Uh, ostensibly, you know, made him some offer where he was supposed to get a million dollars plus. Uh, I was told 10% of the gross gate whenever uh, they ran any shows out in 
Western Canada. In any case, uh, this deal went down without anyone ever, ever consulting me or I knew nothing about it. And, uh, that must have, to hear that though, to to, to find out the news uh, the way you did through the, the back channels, that must have just been, oh, cons- yeah. cons- considering, how, considering how hot it was, how did that feel though? I mean, that must have just kind of ticked you off. I mean, pissed you off. I mean, considering you guys oh. were putting on some really hot shows there and had some really great talent. I mean, the McMahon machine, once they get their claws into something, especially back in the day, it was hard to kind of shake them loose. Yeah, and I was exacerbated by the fact that uh, to some degree, uh, my dad had entered into a couple of, uh, he had brought in a few of his old cronies that were, uh, they were kind of old blasts from the past, and uh, I didn't see eye to eye with uh, a guy named Gene Kaniski and another guy named Sam Meneker, who were essentially, I, uh, you know, kind of told my dad I didn't have much great uh, confidence, and then they were just primarily, uh, Endeavoring to get a paycheck, for, you know, essentially being, you know, freeloaders. So that, that kind of uh, strained the relationship a bit with myself and my dad, because those were old buddies of his. They're old, supposed iconic cronies that uh, didn't have anything much to offer anymore. But in any case, uh, they cut the deal with Vinny, and uh, uh, because they. I think surmised that I didn't want to be part of it. I uh, I was totally excluded from the whole equation, and it annoyed me uh, a lot because I, I had uh, kind of been the uh, I'd been the guy that pretty much put that crew together, and and I I, uh, I was kind of you know uh, the impetus behind a whole new style of wrestling and, and stampede. I had kind of gone to great lengths to kind of. Uh, convinced my dad that some of these smaller guys like my dad like most of the promoters in north america back then was kind of a big man you know uh aficionado so you know back then there was a you know kind of uh the mode was these you know uh heavyweights you know guys 240 and up you know Vern Gagne had big guys and uh texas had big guys and jim crockett and uh Eddie Graham and all these guys, and we had not been doing that great business in the late seventies. And I, uh, I'd been over in England uh, in about seventy-seven, and I had, uh, you know, kind of seen a lot of these really dynamic younger guys, Dynamite Kid, you know, uh, Davy Boy, and uh, a few others. And I uh, kind of browbeat my dad's really persistent about, you know. Run into these guys in England, and they're, uh, you know, in my estimation, the uh, cutting edge of what wrestling needs to be in Calgary. And my business had been, you know, lousy at that time in the late 70s and to the point where my dad had tried to basically get out of it in uh, 77 or something like that. And mm-hmm. that's, in fact, why I went to England because my dad had cut a deal with. These guys from Edmonton called the, called the Osborne brothers, and you know, he essentially uh, was going to walk away from the business, and then the deal fell through. These two guys from Edmonton didn't deliver on, you know, uh, whatever they're supposed to pay my dad, which wasn't much. So, in any case, uh, that you know, uh, that kind of compelled me to, you know. Uh, convinced my dad to bring dynamite and and uh not long after that davy and a few other guys and 
those guys were an integral part of the uh, revitalization of the rebirth of Stampede Wrestling. And, you know, we went from uh, almost uh, going out of business to uh, all of a sudden the whole territory uh, turned around. And uh, right around that time, I, you know, uh, cut some deals with Japan, where Japan, I think we sent dynamite over there one time, uh, he initially in Oki in about 79. He, Fujinami, Sakaguchi, and a few other guys uh, asked my dad if they could do a show in Calgary with an Oki and some of those guys on our card and send the tape back to Japan to kind of, uh, you know, uh, give the impression of that an Oki was uh, a huge star in, that, that whole, in Japan. That worldwide yeah. appeal for an Oki, yeah. yeah. So, uh, in any case, uh, they threw Fujinami, who was uh, their top junior heavyweight, in against Dynamite, and uh, I don't think they had any idea of what Dynamite was about at that time. And and it was like one of those uh, barn burner matches that everyone was like, uh, it went back to Japan, and everyone was uh, in awe, you know. So Anoki and them uh, all of a sudden were begging my dad to let Dynamite do some shots over there, go over in the six-week tours and all like that. And and so that, that kind of launched Dynamite, and then Davey went over there too, and they, uh, you know, that was kind of the, uh, really the birth of the British Bulldogs, you know. And, um, mm-hmm. So anyway, getting back to 84, when Vince, uh, I guess, cut this deal, you know, I think it was brokered by George Scott, and uh, ostensibly the deal was supposed to be a million dollars down and uh, 10% of the gates, as I said before. And then they uh, so started coming out here and, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden uh, I had the rug pulled out from under me. I was, I went from uh, being the booker of, you know, what had been a very uh, prolific hot territory to uh, essentially being unemployed again because I had no damn... Uh, so so, what did you? How did you? How did you deal with that while while Vince took over over the territory? Was it? Did, did you keep your mind in motion, thinking about maybe uh, there could be a time that you guys may be able to get control? Did you have that sort of optimism, or what? Did, what was really going on? I mean, you were like you said, basically, you you were a guy, you know, booking some really hot stuff and stampede to a guy who finds himself unemployed, especially a guy with your pedigree. That must have been you know a bit of a slap in the face, considering with the, with the deal being as shady as it was yeah it was demoralizing um and then um after that uh my dad told me uh wwe or wwf as it was called at that time uh he he made out like they're really gonna do me some kind of a favor they were gonna maybe let me be you know kind of the uh the front man or the guy who put put up posters and put ads in the paper and all that type of stuff when they came to Western Canada and, and they were they're only coming maybe uh, once or twice a year I did that a couple of times and uh, at that time the uh, the guys that they're bringing out here they're all these kind of you know sluggish types most of the guys I remember the guys who were coming up you know some of the guys were like uh, I think Dickie Murdoch was coming up here with uh I think Adonis at that time, who was, you know, they were all right, but they nothing nowhere near as dynamic as the guys. They had a few others like, uh, oh man, uh, Arnold Skoland and. Uh, <laughs> so so it basically it was like a putting a you know playing 
a 45 record on 33 RPM, you know, yeah, <laughs> comparing well, it. Your... the old, you know, uh, and uh, I think, I can't remember, I think Hogan was with them, but they never ever had Hogan in here, you know. Uh, the, it was kind of the the B guys that they had on, and uh, they drew lousy out here because the fans had been spoiled, I guess. You know, they'd seen Dynamite Davey and the Japanese and Brett and... Uh, you know, quite a few other guys that were really uh, pretty hot workers. So, any, in any case, to make a long story short, uh, my dad never got a penny of the yet. Uh, he was supposed to get a million dollars down, and uh, in return, he's supposed to, uh, I guess, give Vince his TV slots and uh, walk away from the business. And then, somewhere in 1985, uh, Vince called Stu up and said. Uh, Something to the effect that I, I can't uh, pay you the million dollars, so feel free to start up again, which was basic, you know. And he still had his TV in here, so it was essentially, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, for want of a better term, screwed my dad, and that was kind of, that was the impetus for my dad to uh, start up again. He was more pissed off that he had uh, been kind of. Uh, you know, deceived or uh, yeah, he's whatever, take, taken know. for a ride basically to, yeah. to get the, the get the the TV and you know and basically what it looked like too was I mean I guess if you can find and find well, a spin a positive uh, he got like he's doing my dad a favor he said and uh, I'll take some of your boys off yeah. my hand you know as if that was doing a favor taking Dynamite Kid who was probably the best worker in the world at that time and maybe the best worker of all time. And and Davy Boy, and Brett, and uh, Anvil, and a few others, you know. So uh, he took made out like he's doing my dad a favor by taking them and uh, making out like, oh, you can start up again. And my my dad was more, uh, I think he's more pissed off that he had been uh, kind of, uh, you know, treated like, you know, kind of a you know a dupe or whatever. So. He he decided to start up again, and it, w- it was a tough time to be starting up again because it was right around the time of uh, Vince launching Hulkamania and um, WrestleMania and all that kind of stuff. So it was it was uh, a tough time. I think my dad was inclined to start up again more just because he was pissed off that he had been uh, treated. And it was also like because he uh, felt you know kind of slighted it was almost a challenge for him to start up but it was really tough when he first started because uh you know most of his best talent had been given to the wwe and um he uh asked me if i would uh you know be able to train or develop some new guys and uh at that time i remember the mode was uh these big you know the era of Hulkamania and Ultimate Warrior and Big John Studd and Hawk and Animal and all that kind of stuff. So my dad initially uh, had a bunch of these muscle types, a guy named Steve DeSalvo, uh, another guy named Tom McGee, who was, I think, World's strongest man, then a guy named Bill Kazmaier. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to get in. Powerlifting champion. Ted Arcidi, I could remember. Ted Arcidi was up here. And, and even we can, we can get into these one at a time. Even And another guy that uh, he had a cup of coffee uh, in, in the Fed was Outback Jack. You guys uh, had oh, up yeah. there for a That's, while, too. You know, That's it, yeah. Dave, Outback Jack and a guy named Dave Barbie. And yep. Man, I. I uh, 
I was doing everything I could to try to get them over, but you know, they, they, our fans had been spoiled too out here. You know, they, they'd had a, a, for the past five years or so, they had had Dynamite and Davey and Brett and uh, a whole bunch of these really exceptional Japanese guys and uh, a few others. You know, it was like a really uh, hybrid brand of wrestling and uh, all of a sudden, you know, had all these kind of lethargic, ponderous muscle head types, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the fan, fans didn't buy it. You know, they're like, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're giving us uh, Tedorosini and Tokas Meyer, who are kind of like Godzilla and King Kong in those old 1950s movies. And, uh, you know, we've had uh, Dynamite Kid in his, in his prime, and we had the... Uh, some of the best Japanese guys ever, and had Davey, who was uh, an awesome worker too, and Brett Brett had been a you know a super worker too. So, but that that that, that, that having that lineup, Bruce, you know, it also must have it got your wheels in motion too, and your dad's to start uh, not only kind of reassembling sort of the style of international talent, but also to start to train and find some guys not only in 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 Canada. But also where uh, you you found guys, well, by way of the United States, I want to talk about one of those guys that you uh, had a really big hand in training and a guy that you uh, uh, had a, worked with alongside in the ring as a tag team partner. You guided this uh, guy. This was a, a real, real talent. I want to talk a little bit. I want to turn into the direction of 1986 and uh, Brian Pillman coming on to the scene. Now, Brian was initially in a part of the professional football business. He was in the NFL working with the Cincinnati Bengals. Buffalo Bills until he found his way up to Calgary around 86 working with the Stampeders now talk about how you guys were able to kind of melt get together here because once it just seemed like it was a perfect match you know with the ultimate family finding this diamond in the rough for pro wrestling in the name of Brian Pillman let's let's talk about how Brian kind of first came into your radar and and the family's radar what happened uh, my dad uh, he had been kind of uh finally started realizing the big uh, muscle-type guys were not really the answer. And uh, so I, I was uh, booking, and I, I had a few other smaller guys. I think right around that time I started my brother Owen, who had uh, just got out of university, and he, he was great right from the get-go. And then I had another younger guy who... Uh, had approached me from Edmonton and uh, he seemed to have a good attitude and it seemed like he had some aptitude to a guy named Chris Benoit who uh, later on became, you know, pretty, pretty damn good worker. Oh, and absolutely. then I, uh, I had about three or four Japanese guys that were kind of dumped on me. They're all smaller guys and initially they're all rookies, but uh, one was a guy named Kichi Yamada who later on attained superstardom as Jushin Liger. And he was totally green at that time, but I kind of, you know, kind of took him and two other uh, Japanese young guys that seemed like pretty decent athletes and nice kids. Uh, a guy named uh, Hiroshi Hasi, oh, another guy named Nakura, and they became the Viet Cong Express. They're sort of a heel tag team, but great athletes. I think Hasi had been six, placed six in the. Uh, Olympic Games and amateur wrestling, so he was pretty, pretty legit. And then there was a more heavy set uh, Japanese guy named Hashimoto, 
another one named Kawada. All pretty damn good workers, you know, not huge on personality, and they uh, obviously didn't speak English much, so it was hard for them to cut promos and that kind of thing. But so I had this kind of uh, a nucleus, and, and they were starting to have pretty good matches. It was right around that time when uh, a friend of mine on the Calgary Stampeders football team, a guy named Stu Laird, um, who'd gone to university with my brother Owen, uh, he called me up and said, I, I've got a a buddy on the Stampeders who's he's a starting uh, outside linebacker. And uh, most times when football players approach you, you know, it's because they've been cut from a football team where they... they got to find that uh, new line of employment that works with the athleticism of what they had before. Yeah, um, they don't want to go back to getting day jobs, and so they've either been cut or they are retired or something like that. But Pillman was one of the very few I know who was actually a starting player on the team right right and this is right in uh, the middle of the season and uh i was introduced to pillman and i i assumed he wanted to maybe start at the end of the year or try and uh, he said i'd he, he came down we were i think training some guys and pillman took to it and and he told me i i'm willing to walk away from the uh being a starting linebacker with the stampeders and uh go full bore into wrestling which is you know, pretty, uh, you know, uncommon, you know, it's, you know, uh, and my dad was even like, uh, telling him he didn't need to, you know, and, uh, but in any case he, uh, persisted and, uh, you know, I, I got him down in the dungeon with Owen and I think Liger a few times and Benoit may have been down there a few times and a few other, uh, of the rookies that were, uh, just getting started around that time. And, uh, and uh, Pillman, uh, he seemed to take to it, you know, and he had a he had a bit of an outrageous personality. It was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde because I'm not sure if you ever met Brian, but if you actually were around him, he was very quiet and introspective and didn't really uh, say much. And then you'd give him the mic or whatever, and he you know turned into this uh, kind of uh, outrageous uh you know he, he just had, uh, seemed to have this you know innate ability to cut these outrageous uh you know roddy piper type promos you know with all kinds of uh big words and uh outrageous declarations and all that type of thing and, uh, that, that's so. what i can remember about brian's early stuff too he he just went out there i mean when i watched him on stampede when we when we got the feed from winnipeg uh i noticed i thought this guy was in four or five years just because he had such a natural the, his charisma you know he just had a natural wherewithal to get on that mic and and create that and generate that excitement and i i, I think that uh, that having that that just lack of fear was was really something that catapulted him as far as oh, you know. Yeah, some... he, he was uh, he, uh, he and I uh, were tag teaming. At, uh, we started tag teaming. Uh, I just come back from a shoulder separation. Had been out for several months. You know, I had major surgery and all. And then just after he started, uh, Brian uh, separated his shoulder. You know, and uh, he was out for a few months. So when we came back, uh, we were both sort of recuperating and. Uh, but he was still uh, 
training guys down in the dungeon and kind of uh, attending the practices just to kind of stay, you know, in circulation. And uh, I remember we talked about, you know, uh, maybe doing a tag team. You know, there was some, uh, I think there was some op- opportunities there. We had a couple of pretty good heel tag teams and stuff. So we came up with this concept called Bad Company. I think there had been a band called Bad Company that, uh, that I remember just hearing the Absolutely. name. Absolutely. Uh, Paul Rogers, baby. We uh, kind of uh, started the, and we had this whole look with uh, the black uh, motorcycle biker jackets and the bandanas and the wraparound sunglasses. And oddly enough, about five years later, my brother Brett Neidhart uh borrowed or hijacked that whole concept you know and they did the heart foundation and uh and pillman and i wore black tights with pink lightning bolts down the side and brett and Nightheart copied that too i might add but uh in any case uh you know for whatever reason we, we had some pretty good heels to work with up here big obnoxious uh heel named mike shaw who was ordained as a born again Pakistani or something like yeah. that. It was just after they had a there'd been a uh-huh. you know, a Air India bombing of, uh, there was a bombing of an Air Canada flight over Japan or India or something by these Sikh terrorists. <laughs> so not long after that Mike saw and we had another incumbent uh you know East Indian named uh the Great Gamma. So we had this you know, scenario where Mike Shaw was uh, all of a sudden ordained as a born again Pakistani, <laughs> as if as if there even was such a thing. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty groundbreaking for the mid '80s, or or pretty much ever. Yeah. And he became, uh, you know, supposedly uh, his name was you know ordained. Like uh, I remember back in those days, they had all these basketball players who Lou Elcinder became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and. You know, and uh, there was a football player, Bobby Moore, who became uh, Ahmed Rashad and all this. You know, they all had. (laughs) So this was all more of like a parody of that. But Mike Shaw became a born again (laughs) Pakistani, as Mukhan Singh. And uh, people uh, really uh, took to it, you know, as like the Iron Sheik or something. Yeah, because you guys really caught a fire with that. And then you guys came up with the creation of the Karachi Vice, which is even more, that's like throwing the whole bucket of gas on an already, you know, potential bonfire, man. It it was kind of a parody of uh, Miami Vice, which was uh, a (laughs) TV show at the time. And uh, so I remember we used to, uh, when the uh, Mike Shaw or Makam Singh and Gamma would come to the ring, we'd have this uh, East Indian sitar, uh, Ravi Shankar type music uh, playing at full blast and, uh, and he's <laughs> drive the people nuts. <laughs> and uh, they'd all be screaming all these obscenities at Mike Shaw, who they called the toilet ball. And, uh, he could, and, he could, he could uh, give it back though. That's the thing. Him and Gamma both, they could, uh, they could get yelled at, but they could throw that heat right back at the crowd. So good. Oh, That's what I loved about Muckin, man, because that was so perfect. That toilet bowl thing, man, he just reveled in it. he had just, it just seemed like his star got bigger, you know, by the, the heat of the crowd uh, and during those days oh, of, yeah, of Muckin. Was, any, any great heel will tell you that, uh, the more, you know, uh, jeering and, you know, name calling and insults and all that stuff that they hurl at you as music to your ears. You know, that's 
exactly what you're seeking is to uh, have them, you know, chanting obscenities and stuff. And, yes. and Mike Shaw, um, you know, and, and we brought in a big, I think he was from Nebraska. He had been national amateur champion. He was a big uh, heavyweight. His real name is Gary Albright, but he had been uh, All-American at Nebraska, and he had... Uh, I think was an altered on the 84 Olympic team with Bruce Baumgartner and all that type of stuff. Uh, he was but a beast. He came up and uh, he uh, joined up with Mike Shaw, you know, he, and uh, he was supposedly Mike Shaw's brother as Vulcan Singh, Mucken and Vulcan Singh. And um, it seemed to all take off. And right around that same time, we had another, uh, he just come up. I think he had been, mostly doing jobs in the WWF or E or whatever it was called at that time, a guy named Barry Orton, Randy Orton's uncle and Bob Cowboy Bob Orton's brother. And um, he pitched me on this kind of uh, odd, odd type uh, persona he wanted to do called the Zodiac, where he was wearing a mask and he was uh, into all this kind of uh, metaphysical, supernatural type stuff. This I was told later this was kind of the impetus or one of the uh, inspirations for Paul Bearer and The Undertaker. But um, So I had Barry Orton, Zodiac, and he was managing this other, uh, not a bad big heel. Uh, we put a, ma- a goalie mask on him like uh, Jason the, uh, in the uh, Friday the 13th or one of those horror movies. <laughs> so we had him uh, and Zodiac supposedly. It was a lot like... Uh, Bray Wyatt type stuff where you had this guy supposedly, uh, you know, taking over this guy's soul and all this. Yeah, stuff. the mind, the mind control and those promos were just out of this world for the time, man. With Barry and oh, he, it, was, it was really cutting edge stuff because uh, Barry Orton, who was actually uh, very underrated and had a brilliant, twisted mind. You know, he would uh, he would cut these promos in a a sound recording studio earlier, you know, uh, that week he'd go into the studio and uh, he'd cut all these promos and they'd have all these weird sound effects and warps and stuff. And then he would lip sync <laughs> to his own pre-cut promos. And the fans actually thought he talked, it sounded like that. And it was like, uh, you know, they all these... Elvis. And, Those uh, manip- sound manipulation things. Yeah, yeah, it was really yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it, it was cutting edge stuff because it was really spooky, you know, and they had the uh, this other guy who was, uh, you know, with the goalie mask and was kind of a forerunner of the Undertaker, kind of a, you know, almost like kind of a possessed monster type. And um, so... Those two things, and we still had the Viet Cong Express, all of a sudden we had this, you know, three-headed dog at the gates of hell as far as our heels with, uh, you know, the Karachi Vice and then the Viet Cong Express and Jason and the Zodiac, and uh, that proved to be a very uh, nice fit for all, I had all these baby faces who were uh, full of energy and, and charismatic and dynamic, uh, like Owen and Tillman and Liger and Benoit and, um, and they were, they were just, and it kind of brought them to the next level. And, uh, I remember at that time, everyone was kind of, this is at the height of Hulkamania and all that type of stuff. And everyone was kind of like, uh, initially sneering at, uh, 
all this stuff because I think everywhere else in the States, everyone was just trying to be a copy of Hulkamania and Ultimate Warrior and uh, Hawk and Animal and all that kind of stuff. And, and there was a lot of kind of skepticism about all these small guys and a you know a fat slob like uh, Mike Shaw. You know, they kind of... and we were almost the antithesis of uh, whatever they were doing in WWE. And I think that was to, to some degree by design, you know, it was almost like, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to flatter them by trying to imitate them or copy them. And I don't see that being a good, you know, way of drawing people anyway, if you're coming across as a cheap imitation. So I was almost bound to determine to, uh, you know, go, you know, go back to wrestling like all those faces i talked about like benoit and uh, owen and uh and tillman and liger and uh another guy named basarab and a couple of others they were all really uh kind of dynamic uh athletic type uh baby faces and they, they, you know at that time the uh mode for the faces in wwe was ultimate warrior and Hulk Hogan and uh, Zeus and you know that type of thing. Just just Atlas. a big man oriented uh, sort of yeah. Uh, thing, yeah. And, and I remember uh, even during that time, WWE was still trying to send these. Uh, I think my brother Brett or Nightheart were trying to maybe uh, get over with some of the guys in the WWE at that time. So they they kept calling my dad and uh, sending these rookies who were. One was Mark Scarp, a Chief J. Strong, both kid. Another was George Skoland, uh, Arnold Skoland, kid. And uh, they were sending all these kind of guys from WWE up here. And one of them was Outback Jack. <laughs> and uh, and uh, now, what did you think when you came across Outback Jack and you watched some of his work in the ring? Let's just be honest here, Bruce. Um, I think most people maybe. I think the only ostensible explanation I could uh, render at this point is that it was uh, at the height of those Crocodile Dundee movies, so they were trying to somehow they capitalize on Paul Hogan's popularity and uh, you know, and maybe use that as a, a wedge or a segue to get something going in Australia. I remember I I remember I, uh, I, remember I uh, rendered a really sarcastic interview one time about uh outback jack uh having two left left feet and you know uh tripping over both of them at the same time and all this type of stuff <laughs> and uh, he, he um the other part about outback that was even more kind of you know uh annoying to me was uh he kept coming up to me and i was, I was like the booker and wanting me to push him and all like that but he was quite candid and outspoken with, uh, you know, uh, I'm just uh, in this bullish territory, our territory, you know, as a stepping stone to WWE. I'm going back there. So, uh, you know, he was almost like condescending and uh, putting us down. Like that was the only reason he was even here is because WWE had sent him up here. It was like purgatory or yeah, doing you a favor. And, yeah. So that, that, uh, and, I think the other guys, the RCD and uh, Skoland and them had the same, you know, and which in its own way is an impetus or an incentive for um, Owen and Benoit and Tillman and the Japanese guys like uh, 
almost became kind of more of a challenge. Well, screw you guys, you know. Uh, and they were they were uh, not in any way, shape, or form aiming to go to WWE at that time. They were wanting to, uh, you know, kind of get stampede, you know, kind of off and running and yeah and some seasoning as well and and keep the competition a little bit faster paced when i think of uh you know george scolan or uh, you know ted arcidi and outback jack again we go back to that whole like just basically antithesis of what you you really your vision was for stampede oh yeah and i uh, i was gratified and uh it was really intrinsically rewarding that those uh those guys that everyone was kind of sneering at, uh, the smaller guys. I remember the Strongbow and uh, Gorilla Monsoon and those guys, you know, WWE still running some shows. They would still come to Calgary uh, a couple of times a year and they'd come in and they, and they were always disparagingly referring to uh, Owen and Pillman and Benoit and Liger and them as the midgets. You know, and uh, it almost became more of a impetus or a challenge. You know, at that you know, uh, at that juncture, you probably recall the uh, predominant you know uh, mode in WWE was monster big guys. You know, they had Andre the Giant and Hogan and Big John Studd and Hawk and Animal and uh, Ultimate Warrior and uh, Tony Atlas and uh, very much the of, of the anabolic era when you want to look back on it. Yeah, and it was uh, it was kind of you know uh, even at that time uh, the Bulldogs who were in WWE at that time were uh, almost considered undersized, uh, you know, even though they were phenomenal workers. And uh, I think there was you know a lot of uh, tragic consequences of that whole uh, you know kind of impetus at that time with the anabolics. You know, it's well documented how many guys uh paid the ultimate price oh absolutely absolutely reason to go down that uh you know kind of road but i remember it was just kind of you know i i was uh i was pissed off frankly that uh you know they they're looking down their nose at uh the guys we were you know and what we were doing up here as if we were kind of a bunch of uh undersized midgets who didn't understand you know uh anything about uh the marketing and and i remember at that time i I, you know we had had a lot of concepts that were indigenous to stampede wrestling that they were kind of sneering at too i remember it's around that time i started this concept uh initially i called it a bermuda triangle match but it was later on in the wwe uh at first they were kind of looking down their nose at it and sneering at us. And later on, about five years later, they came up with this supposed brilliant concept called the triple threat match. And I'm kind of saying, uh, that's, you know, some, something I started, uh, about five, six years before you guys ever even, and you guys are kind of sneering at it, like chief J and, uh, some of those guys like, uh, you know, why would you have three guys in the ring at the same you know, kind of thing, you know? And there's another concept we had started out here in Calgary that was called the ladder matches. Initially, I remember hearing uh, Gorilla and some of those guys kind of, you know, talking about that and saying, you know, it's, you know, a bunch of 
bullish or whatever, you know. And <laughs> that's, of course, become a made millions off that too, you know. So in its own way, those types of uh, denigration through kind of, you know, in their own way, a challenge or, a, you know, incentive for me to uh, keep doing what I was doing, you know. And Absolutely. I guess getting back to what you're saying uh, or what we were originally talking about with Tillman, he... he uh, he was kind of one of the most outspoken, you know, and almost all those guys, that was kind of the, uh, the, uh, motivation for them to, uh, is, you know, some of the guys from the WWE had been so outspoken and arrogant and denunciative of what we were doing, you know, almost to the point where it was like, uh, well, we'll show you type thing, you know, and, uh, and that just kind of, made them uh that much better you know and much more that much more determined to uh become uh an alternative rather than a, a copy of all that you know and um in, in retrospect you know i feel like if wwe had been more inclined to be uh aiding and abetting a place like stampede and some of the other territories that had been really uh prolific in in the uh, 80s it would have served them a great purpose, you know. I, I still believe the uh, that's one of the uh, biggest things that's threatening the uh, ongoing survival of our business is the desecration of the grassroots of wrestling. You know, back in the day, you know, uh, you would know. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of modern day fans don't even have any idea that back in the '80s and the '70s, or whatever, there was, uh, you know, about thirty fairly uh successful vibrant territories going on and uh that they sustained the grassroots of the business and they produced so many of these great workers you know and it was uh all kind of needlessly uh burned to the ground and <laughs> put out of business by wwe for, for uh, what they referred to as progress which was really more of a digress that really kind of flushed down the uh, territory it, it was system. mostly uh paranoia they uh didn't perceive them to be, I guess, the equivalent of uh, maybe Major League Baseball deciding that minor league baseball or the NFL deciding that college football or, you know, is uh, cutting into their action or maybe a threat to you. So they uh, systematically uh, went out of their way to uh, eliminate all those and uh, they're still paying the price for it today because there's uh, not nearly as many guys that are actually quality workers out there anymore so the consequence of that is there's a proliferation of gimmicks and a lot more talk and a lot less action and more you know kind of illicit finishes and all the other stuff you know so um oh, absolutely and that's people that are ultimately paying the price for that are the poor fans to me it's it's a sad uh, state for the uh the average wrestling fan, you know, because I know in Calgary, uh, you got 52 weeks a year. Every week you're having a steady diet of Dynamite Kid and David Schultz and Bret Hart and uh, Davy Boy Smith and all these guys. And in Minneapolis, you had uh, Crusher and the Bruiser and uh, you know, one of the great crews of all time there. And you had a great feeder city. Texas, you had every week you'd come out and see, uh, you know, uh, what, you know, some incredible matches and it was all over North America, all these different territories. And nowadays, you know, uh, wrestling fans 
maybe once a year WWE comes up here and uh, more often than not it's kind of a if it's not a TV taping or a damn pay-per-view and it very rarely is up here it's just kind of a walk through you know and a sterile uh, you know, no angles, no nothing hot, you know. Like a dress rehearsal so, for something bigger for uh, for yeah, a, a, a buy, TV. Yeah, go buy a T-shirt or go buy some merchandise and uh, that type of thing, you know. But it's not anything that gives the fans any that that big event that big event feeling that the way a house show used to be before the the television became more oh, important yeah, than that the house. Was a huge part of it, and uh, the fans uh, never thought to be. Uh, told it was a work or sports entertainment or whatever the hell they want to call it. They, they just come, you know, back in the day, you could come out there and invest your emotions and uh, all the other, and it was uh, an emotional roller coaster ride that uh, sustained you and you were looking forward to coming back the next week and the next week, and it was... It was uh, Incredible. I, I, I had the good fortune to, you know, get around to uh, other territories, and it was uh, similar to that in Amarillo and similar to that in Kansas City and in Portland and um, Florida and um, Minneapolis, you know, and uh, that's, to me, uh, kind of sad, you know. It's still, uh, you know, I... I uh, I would think WWE, if, uh, you know, I always hear Hunter using that term, what's best for business, what's best for business would be uh, to resow some legitimate seats at the grassroots, not, you know, and even even if the uh, coaches are the best, you know, coaches in the world, and I'm not sure that they are in NXT, and even if that group of wrestlers is the best in the world, uh, incredible prospects, and I'm not sure that they are. It would still be of great benefit to them to uh, send them somewhere and let them learn how to work without being under the microscope, so to speak. To me, it's ass-backwards, counterproductive nonsense, where you have uh, a bunch of you know prospects training in NXT, and everyone sees them in their embryonic kind of uh, trial and error state. You know, at, you know, in the old days, uh, whenever a guy, a new heel or a new face, new hot thing hit a territory, uh, nobody ever had any preconception of them. Nobody ever seen them when they were in the, uh, you know, kind of jabroni state or the rookie state, you know, they'd, when they were hit a territory, they were uh, hot to go, you know, and uh, to me it's counterproductive when all the fans, you know, are exposed to whoever, you know, in NXT and they've had three or four different names, you know, like uh, Michael McGillicuddy became, uh, you know, uh, Bray Wyatt or... <laughs> You know, all this type of stuff. You know. Yeah, especially so, those that, uh, that have the generational or have the family bloodline when they're trying to. I mean, it worked to a degree until now. More recently, they've kind of lost the way with Bray Wyatt. But these guys like that, like uh, Joe Henning, for for instance, Curtis Axel or, or whatever, yeah, McGillicuddy. Yeah, I, I think it's ass backwards counterproductive. And um, the other part of it that's really uh, lacking is even if you're... Uh, even if you have a really great style and all this other type of thing, uh, 
one of the beauties of the business back in the day was this diversity. You know, I I, I loved it uh, where a guy that would come up from Minneapolis or a guy would come up from Amarillo or a guy would come up here, you know, from uh, maybe Florida or uh, from England or Japan. They They would add a new dimension to our territory and my dad was and I was as well when I was booking I was always very uh, kind of uh, you know eager to integrate those new styles I, I'd never take a guy from England like Dynamite Kid or Davy Boy or a guy from Japan like Liger or a guy from Tennessee like David Schultz or Honky Tonk I'd never be telling them uh scrap your style uh we want you to do our style instead i was like you know i love you know the element you're bringing you know that uh you know schultz had that kind of swagger that style or dynamite had that or the japanese guys had that really uh kind of ass kicker style like uh, nakamura type thing but even more dynamic and uh so i, I was always of of the opinion that uh, this was a hybrid, a melting, a melting pot that uh, was made that much better by all these different diverse aspects, you know. And uh, I think WWE has missed the boat on that. It's exasperating for me even now to see, uh, like to some degree, it's evident that they're trying to, uh, you know, push the Japanese guys like Nakamura and Asuka or whatever, but. Uh, if such is the case, they should be doing more of that, you know. And uh, one of the things that frustrates me with Asuka and uh, Nakamura is uh, most of the guys are not really uh, able to work their style or the girls either, you know. And uh, it kind of compromises the uh, result. Even so, they're still getting over. But, you know, I think that's one of the things that the business needs to be uh, more vigilant about is having a diverse uh, hybrid rather than kind of trying to conform conform everybody to this uh, pseudo-WWE style. And, you know, I think, the, uh, I'm not sure if there's any remedy to it. I, I guess the best remedy would be WWE opening up their mind and uh, putting aside some of their egocentricity and, uh, you know, choosing to uh, embrace and... Uh, you know, get over some of those other styles, you know, and that, uh, that was always uh, one of the things that really uh, served us well up in Calgary was, you know, these, you know, varying styles. We had so many styles, but they all seemed to converge and mesh. You know, we had the French Canadians like Leo Burke and them who were great workers and the Southern guys and the Texas guys and, the, you know, the uh, Calgary guys uh, were kind of bought by my dad and then the English guys and uh, you know a few other places and uh, you know I, I could attest firsthand that that uh, was an incredible uh, kind of uh, means of you know producing talent and uh, I think one of the other things not to digress that's missing in the business these days Glenn is the uh, road trips <laughs> it sounds funny but uh, we used to spend 2,000 miles or so a week on the road, you know, a lot of driving in uh, Western Canada and Montana and all like that. But a lot of things can get shared in, uh, in those rides. A lot of uh, good ideas. So, a lot of uh, mischief. So, a lot of different things. 
Oh, exactly. Uh, those, you know, I, I took it for granted at the time. In fact, I sometimes grumbled about the long road trips and the uh, that whole thing. But uh, in retrospect, it was an incredible learning environment. You know, where you'd be in a van with uh, twelve guys. You know, a diverse group of guys from maybe a few Japanese guys, a few old veterans, a few guys from England. Uh, you know, uh, a few guys from Tennessee. Or, and uh, invariably just be talking about the business, you know, and, uh, you know, guy, rookies would be saying, uh, you know, uh, I don't seem to be getting over, what would you suggest? And we're fortunate enough to have a lot of these uh, iconic veterans up there, you know, guys like Harley Race and uh, Dory and Terry Funk and, uh, you know, John Foley, some of those guys, and, and, they would uh, give you this wealth of knowledge, you know, and I, I was uh, I was always a sponge for all that as far back as I can remember. I, I remember one time we had Luthez up for uh, a few weeks, you know, and we were just like picking his brain, and uh, he was more than uh, generous with pr- perspective and advice and insights, and uh, we'd be asking him about stuff, uh, what got over in the 1930s, and uh, and I remember, uh, you know, we have just uh, seemed to have a lot of these uh, old veterans, you know, kind of that were interspersed. Leo Burke or the Cuban Assassins, or uh, you know, some of these. Uh, Rip Rogers, Kerry Brown. Yeah. I mean, the list goes uh, yeah. on and on. Ron Starr. Oh, oh yeah, Ron Starr was another great one, and uh, I was always, you know, picking their brains and uh, asking, you know, I'd be just sharing perspectives it was fascinating to me just to hear the uh the stories and uh and invariably you know a name would come up that uh you know you'd heard about but uh leroy mcgurk or somebody would tell you about danny hodge or somebody would you know have a parable about crusher and bruiser or uh you know larry the axe hennig or uh you know uh some of those other uh, Pat O'Connor and uh, Whipper Watson, <laughs> you know, and uh, I almost I got to the point where I, I uh, almost felt like I knew these guys, even though I had never met them. And I, I later on would meet some of these guys at Cauliflower Alley or something, and uh, you know, it'd be like an old homecoming, <laughs> hard-boiled Haggerty, or you know, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Ray Stevens or you know, guys like that, but. Uh, it really uh, it gave me some incredible perspectives about the business, which I was able to apply to uh, my booking and just kind of the uh, what I'd impart to these young guys, you know. And uh, the, you know, it also made me realize uh, what a void or how how much of that is uh, unfortunately uh, lacking in in the WWE, you know. And, uh, I, I still think Vince and them need to, uh, if they're going to, you know, uh, pave the way for the future, they need to borrow from the past, you know. Uh, Absolutely. I, I really, United, I, I agree with United you. United States is the greatest example of that of any country I can think of, you know, uh, because they're so immersed in the tradition, you know, everything from... Lincoln and Roosevelt and Washington and Jefferson and uh, John Brown and Woodrow Wilson and FDR and all you know this type of thing. Uh, 
but wrestling needs to uh, it needs to revisit its glorious past, not sweep the effing thing under the carpet, which is unfortunately uh, what to a great degree has happened. You know, which is shameful. You know, uh, even and I've discoursed on even on my radio show something patently wrong with uh, the WWE Hall of Fame when Luthez is not in it, you know, or Strangler Lewis or Frank Gotch or uh, so many of these other guys, you know, Luther Lindsay and guys, you know, there's a, a myriad of them that, you know, were tremendous contributors and guys that had uh, an incredible amount of influence on what the business was and all like that. And they're, you know, conspicuously absent from the... Uh, Hall of Fame yet you got guys like the Godfather and Bob Euchre and uh, you know uh, yeah it gets to be Medu- a Medusa whose main claim to fame is throwing Vince's belt in a garbage can on WCW and some of that you know and they're in the Hall of Fame yet you know Luthez is and our Dynamite Kid isn't or Owen Hart's not you know kind of like you know is, is it me or am I seeing things in a skewed perspective or, you know, is, you know, uh, is this really happening? You know? Yeah. I, I so, think, I think that a lot of people have that, uh, would actually agree with you, Bruce on that, but Hey, Bruce looks like my timekeeper is looking at me to ring the bell. We have gone over an hour once again. Uh, boy, I'm going to have to have you come back on because we've got just, again, every time we get on here, it seems like we're merely scratching the surface, my friend. Well, that's good. Better, uh, better than the other way around, where you're like, man, this guy's, uh, <laughs> you know, hasn't said a damn thing for an hour. He's just kind of blowing smoke or you know, talking out of the side of his mouth or something. So, I'm, I'm glad, uh, you know, and uh, kudos to you, also, Glenn. You know, you, you, uh, it's, it's always nice talking to a guy who's knowledgeable and passionate, and uh, makes it so much more, uh, you know. Uh, intrinsically rewarding where you, you know, feel like you're actually talking to somebody who un- understands the business and has appreciation and passion for it. And as my dad used to say, nothing great was ever achieved without passion. So uh, um, I, I commend you for that too. Thank you so much. And it's time to wrap up Wrestling Memories. For the one and only Bruce Hart, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now. Thank you, Bruce. Take care of yourself. All the best.